Uh, we've had a week of being reminded of uh, how broken the world is. We've seen evil acts done now. Uh, but particularly as we think about Armistice Day, it's quite a common suggestion that people have that the evil of war is the reason that people give up on God. That the, the, the evil done during conflict is evidence that God doesn't exist. Um, now, I'm actually interested, I, I did some research this week, did some reading, and they've actually collected together the diaries of various men who were in the trenches during the wars, and uh, I think it was the First and Second World War that they took a survey of. And they found that that narrative isn't quite as true as we're sometimes led to believe, that there was an awful lot of men who, in the face of the war, uh, found great comfort in trusting in God. So uh, the old saying apparently is fairly true, there are no atheists in the foxholes. Um, so that is true. But, but there were some men, uh, particularly those who didn't believe in God already, where the evil of war proved that God was absent, and sometimes it fed their agnosticism or their doubt. So John Bassett wrote in his diary, So anyway, God, I know you're up there, I know you see me and that you hear me, and I know you believe me, but I do not believe you really care about us. And certainly these days, that's not an unusual response to the problem of the evil in this world. Uh, if there is evil in war, if there's evil happening in our streets, where is God? What's he on about anyway? And, and it's not a new question. It's a question that the Bible comes back to again and again. Uh, God's people, the Israelites, they, they not only experienced evil, sometimes they even did evil. And the question that comes up is, where was God in all that? What was God's involvement? Didn't he care when his people did evil? And so I find it really interesting that when, you, when Israel wants to go back to their roots, when they want to remember the stories that shaped and formed their identity as a nation, you go back there and you find among those stories the story of Abram and Hagar. The story from Genesis 16 that we read this morning. Do get your Bible out and, and open to that passage if you haven't already. Because in today's passage, it's interesting that Abram did evil. And, and Israel doesn't deny that. They don't excuse it. They deliberately remember it. Uh, they remembered Abram, they remembered Hagar's suffering, because they were convinced that this story offers hope in hard places, that it offers hope in the face of evil. So what I want us to see this morning, three things. I think this story is telling us that God sees evil, that God brings good from evil, but God never excuses. Let's have a look at it. So first of all, notice that God saw Abram's evil. It's not that what Abram and Sarah did was particularly unusual for that time and place. If you were infertile, to use a, a servant girl, to, or a servant maid, maid servant to, to be a sort of a surrogate, that was common enough. But what's clear in Genesis 16 is this is not God's plan. It's not what God wants in this situation. I mean, for starters, we're told that Hagar is an Egyptian slave, which rings a whole lot of alarm bells if you've been reading along in this book, because Egypt, that means that she was, became part of the, the family, so to speak, when Abram was lying to Pharaoh about his wife. That was when she probably joined the fruit. She's the product of his lies then, but also... Sarai, we find her still accusing God of her infertility. She actually uses the same words that Abram used a chapter ago when he was questioning God. 
Now, they're on the lips of Sarah. She doesn't think, she thinks that God is keeping them from having kids. It's quite clear that she's forming this plan because she doesn't trust God. This isn't God's plan. This is Sarai's plan. Have a look at verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I, I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Now, if you remember back in the Garden of Eden, when everything went wrong, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, there was the whole blame game going on. It turns out, seems to be the way that things happen when things go wrong, generally for humans, because when Hagar has the baby, and there's tension between Hagar and Sarai, you see the blame game all over again. Hagar despises Sarai, Sarai blames Abram, Abram throws the responsibility back at Sarai, and so Sarai takes it out on Hagar. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? Hagar is an innocent, innocent, but because she's powerless one, she's the focus of, she, she's the one who suffers the most. It's a bit like the Banking World Commission, isn't it? The banks lent too much money to people who couldn't afford to repay it. And when that happens, when the people can't afford to repay, it's not like the banks suffer in that situation, they just repossess the home. It's the powerless person who ends up wearing the cost. And here, that's Hagar. Um, This is wrong. This whole situation is evil. And the point of the passage is that God sees it. God sees Hagar's suffering. He hears her cry. And and you can tell that that's an important point in this passage because it's there in a poem or a song. It's always a dead giveaway for reading the Old Testament especially. If it's in a song... It's probably important. So have a look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord has said to her, You are now pregnant and you shall give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. So Ishmael actually means God hears. The idea is that every time Hagar calls her son for dinner, she will be reminded, God hears. Hey, God hears. Can you leave your sister alone? Ishmael means God's here, and, and this is supposed to be a comfort for Hagar. It is a comfort for Hagar. Have a look at verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And, and if you read your footnote, you even see that she names the well, the well of the living one who sees. God sees. God sees evil. It's not hidden and forgotten. We've just finished the Royal Commission into Abuse. It has been harrowing, but it has been really important. Because too many times these people, their their evil done to them was denied. It was ignored by by government bodies, by community groups, by church leaders. It it has been good that, that this truth is now known and exposed. But here's the better news of Genesis 16. Even those stories that haven't been told are known by God. God hears the tears of victims as they lie in their beds at night. God sees the wrong that is done. And he does something about it.
So in the case of Hagar, God acts. It's not the way we expect. Uh, we generally expect God to remove evil. We think that's going to be the natural response. But instead, what God does, and he does this a lot, is he brings good from our evil. Something worth thinking about um, is the fact that often people will present the existence of evil as an argument against God, as if that solves a problem. But see, if you remove God from the equation, that doesn't change the reality of evil in this world. You can disprove God by the problem of evil, but evil still is there. And so what are you going to do about it? What hope and what comfort will you find in the face of the evil that we experience in this world? And I want to go a step further, because many people, when they don't believe there's a God, they, they put their hope in people ending suffering. That's basically the message of our culture at the moment. Um, it's the goal of our health care system. It's what a whole lot of our political and social discussions are about. How can we get rid of suffering in this world? We even have the suggestion of trigger warnings in um, lectures so that people can be warned if something that's about to be said might cause them pain and they can remove themselves. We want to avoid suffering. We think people can bring an end to suffering. But can you notice in this story, that's exactly what Sarah is trying to do. She is suffering and she's trying to end her own suffering. And so that's why she involves Hagar. And yet it doesn't end suffering, it produces more. Now there's not only the problem of infertility, there's a problem of jealousy as well. It's actually a bit of a common pattern in our world we try and bring happiness and freedom, but we end up only able to do that at the cost of someone else. Instead of trusting ourselves, the Bible is encouraging us to trust God because God can take evil and bring about good. So in the case of Hagar, Abram's evil actions result in a child but God promises to use this child to give Hagar security. Have a look at verse 10. This child will be the start of a huge family. And we're also told that this child will stand up for himself. I think this is supposed to be the, the comfort of verse 12. This is supposed to be great news for Hagar. Ishmael, when he's in the schoolyard and he's being bullied, he will stand up for himself, which is exactly what Hagar was unable to do. When she was being picked on by Sarah, she was a slave, she was weak and callous. Not this boy. And it turns out there's something even bigger going on. If you want to turn to the next chapter, chapter 17, because in chapter 17, God repeats his promise to, to give kids to Abram, and he says it's going to be through Sarah. Now, in verse 17, Abram actually thinks that's a waste of time. Have a look at chapter 17, verse 17. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live <laughs> under your blessing. Now, God doesn't go along with Abraham's plan, but it's interesting that he doesn't chuck Ishmael away either. Verse 20. He says, Ishmael will be blessed. Let me read it. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, I will surely bless him. I'll make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers, and he will be the father of twelve rulers, 
and I'll make him into a great nation. It's almost the promise, the original promise to Abram, being, being applied to this child who was the, the product of Sarah, thinking that she could bring about a solution to her problems herself. The point I'm making is, what happened to Hagar was evil, but God works good from it. And I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully there. God didn't cause the evil, people caused the evil. But evil is under God's control. He's able to use it to produce good things. And the Christian teacher Don Carson says it quite well, I think. It must be the case that God stands behind good and evil in somewhat different ways. That is, he stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. It's not the same when God uses, does good in this world, but that doesn't mean that evil is out of control. He harnesses evil to bring about good purposes. And, and this is what you find again and again in the Bible. So you go to the end of Genesis, the story of Joseph. Um, Joseph's brothers, they intend him evil, they sell him into slavery, but God's plan is to use that for good. It means that he can rescue his whole family. Um, you have the Israelites. Again and again, they fail God. They fail to trust God. And yet, as a result of their disobedience, we end up with this promise of a king who will rescue everyone. God works through history, through the failure of Israel, to really clearly show us that we need Jesus. And if you want any place to look to see God in control of evil and working for good, then you just have to look at Jesus dying on the cross. Because there is the ultimate wrong, and God uses it to bring about the ultimate. An innocent man, God's son, is arrested and killed as a criminal, humiliated and shamed, and he dies. But in his death, he buys forgiveness for all of us. God uses evil for good. This is just wonderfully comforting. Because we all experience it. So you can just think about the things that have been done to you in the past. Maybe the way that people are treating you at the moment. You are even able to think about the evil that you have done to others. And their guilt and regret there, and know that God is able to work it for good. And Romans 8 God works everything for good for those who love Him, for those who trust in His Son Jesus. I think of it a bit like knives and guns. A, a knife in the hand of a thief is terrifying, a knife in the hand of a surgeon can be a great comfort. A gun in the hand of a terrorist means death, but a gun in the hand of a police officer can save a life. God sees evil and he is able to use it to bring it down. Now, that's really the main takeout, I think, from this passage, but, but there is something else important I want us to see in Genesis 17, and that's that Abram wasn't excused. That in saying that God used his evil actions to do good, that doesn't mean God compromised his standard. His standard is still blamelessness. Have a look at Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then 
I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. God's determined to be Abram's God. That's what the covenant that he's about to make is all about. Um, He even has this really physical representation, though. But to be his God, Abram will have to do something. Abram is going to have to cut off the flesh of his skin, of his foreskin. He's going to get circumcised. It's a reminder that, that God does expect Abram to be blameless, to cut off the sin in his life if he is to consistently be one of God's people. Now, I actually want to show that this is something God's been working to. So we have the slide that sort of shows the structure. So what I've got here on the left is Genesis 12, the original promises that God made to Abram. Uh, remember he said he had two instructions. He said, go. And then he promised God a land and he promised offspring. And then he said, be a blessing. Do good. And through, all, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And then you, we go on, and in chapter 15, Abram raises the question of, will I get the offspring? And God said, makes this unconditional promise. He shows him the stars and says, yep, guaranteed. And then Abram says, will I, will, my, will I get the land? And God makes this unconditional promise. He tells him 400 years of history and says, yep, you're going to get the land. But then we get the story of Hagar where Abram isn't a blessing to the nations, he's a curse. And that's when the covenant comes in, the covenant of circumcision that says, well, for Abram to be the father of nations, he needs to be blameless. And really this this is the problem in the story of Israel, that they keep failing to be that, because the only person who ultimately keeps this covenant is Jesus. And only when Jesus is blameless does blessing flow to the nations. This is my little proposal. I, I had a few people hint this. I think this is what's going on in these chapters. What, the, what is important to get out of that is that God still desires blamelessness. Even when Jesus comes, his goal is blamelessness. So um, if we can have Titus 2 up, thanks to him. Titus 2.14 reminds us why Jesus died for us. It was so that we could become famous. And Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Yes, God works good from Abram's evil, and God forgives us, and we are welcomed into his family, counted as children, without doing anything. But God's goal is blamelessness. He wants us to pursue that. He's going to guarantee, he guarantees he will deliver it on the day when Jesus returns again. That is his goal, his end point, that is unquestionable. But he's also working by his spirit now, teaching us to pursue a life that actually blesses others, that does good in God's world. That's God's work here and now. So this is, this is sort of the story of the problem of evil in, our, in God's people. Yes, God sees the evil. God uses it to work for good. But it doesn't excuse us. God's goal is still blamelessness. Okay. So God sees evil and works it for good. And we've got so many ways that we could go there. It gives us confidence when when we've done wrong that that God can still work. You You look back on life and there's regrets. God can use even the worst things that we've done. All good. 
when we experience evil, when, when we go through suffering. Not always that we can map it all out, we can't know the details, we can com- be confident that as we trust Jesus and we encounter his children, we can work it through. But it is messy. So if you want to think through this topic, last slide, thanks, Gordon. Um, there's a book I'd really recommend, I think it's really helpful, by Tim Keller. It's called um, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's really good because it's sort of got, he actually at the start says, look, this question of suffering can be handled in different ways. There's the question intellectual and there's the experiential question. And so if, you, if you're currently going through suffering, go to this part of the book and read these chapters. If you're just trying to wrestle with the, the intellectual question, start off over here. Um, I just think it's a great approach to the book. But the other thing he does really well in the book is that each chapter ends with a personal story, with some unknown story of struggling with suffering and trusting God in the midst of that. And so one of those stories is of a lady whose parents were alcoholics. So she grew up in this broken home. Uh, she grew up looking for men to protect her, and that led her to a series of bad decisions in terms of marriage, until eventually she did manage to find a man who cared for her, and they had a family together. And then one of her children ended up in jail, and another suffered schizophrenia. Then she lost her husband to a stroke. But here's what she writes. Life has not changed, but God is changing me. What I discovered about heartaches and problems, especially the ones that are way beyond what we can handle, is that maybe those are the problems he does permit precisely because we cannot handle them, all the pain and anxiety they cause, but he can. I think he wants us to realise that trusting him to handle these situations is actually a gift. His gift of peace to us, in the midst of the craziness, problems don't disappear and life continues, but he replaces the sting of those heartaches with hope. This morning, God is offering hope in hard places. I don't know exactly what that says to you and where it needs to be felt. It may be that as I point to Jesus on the cross, that doesn't really ring for you as something that, that provides comfort in the face of evil. If that's the case, please come and see me after. Maybe it's just that you haven't discovered all the riches that are there and available in the cross. But do encourage each other with this wonderful news. God Sees. God works good out of our evil. And he doesn't excuse it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Hanegar. Thank you for this reminder of the times when, when we think we can do better than you and the way that can go bad. But also the great comfort that you work for good for those who love you. So we put our confidence in you and we trust in Jesus know ourselves as your children, for Jesus' sake. Right, um, just before we wrap up, I'm going to just run through announcements and let you know what's happening in our church family.